Welcome to episode 183 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm doing well. Hi, Ben. How was your rest of your Indian Wells experience? I left the tournament a couple days early. It seemed like from afar that everything was a fairly fairy tale ending type thing. Did you feel fairy tale full? It, it felt very fairy tale full. Uh, just with Elena Vesnina and uh, Roger Federer winning, you couldn't find two more kind of beloved players in their respective locker rooms. Um, just with Elena Vesnina being, yeah, just, just a really nice lady. She's, she's pretty great. And so to see her pull off the run that she had was, was really, really cool. And it felt like the whole tournament was kind of a feel good tournament, at least on the women's side, just because it felt like every day there was like a result that came through that made you kind of be like, Oh, wow. Like that's awesome for you. Um, which was great. Um, and then with the men, I think, I don't know, it seems like everybody's happy when Roger wins things and what a start to the season. Yeah. I mean, if freezing, if freezing cold takes wanted to take down a lot of tennis writers, I'm pretty sure right now they probably could. I'm sure. <laughs> um, I, I just think it's, 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 you know, your tournament has good vibes when one top star calls another top star an asshole and everyone's like, <laughs> oh, that guy. Oh, that guy. Oh, they're just so, it's so great. Oh, those assholes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, let's start with the women in particular. Elena Vesnina uh, plays an incredible tournament, beating a string of players people probably didn't expect her to beat, at least a couple for sure. Kerber beat her pretty soundly in the fourth round and then moved on and beat Venus Williams, who she had a good record against, but I think still some people, I'm guessing Venus is probably the popular pick in that match. And then came uh Milanovic in the semis and then her compatriot Kuznetsova in the final who she beat in a long epic battle coming down from a set in 4-1. Is that right? That's pretty good. Um we were talking Courtney we, when on my last night in Indian Wells we were talking about the sort of what the opportunities were for um this title being decided between at that point it was before the semifinals. So between those four women who were left and Vesnina was sort of the one who was maybe toughest to find a narrative for, I think it's fair to say of the four as what she meant as a potential champion. But I think this is an incredible testament to her as sort of a, if I feel a little bit like a lifetime achievement award, um, not quite in, in her achievement over her lifetime in her singles wasn't as great as say Flavia Panetta's, who may be a similar type of title a couple years ago in Indian Wells, but I, I don't know. That's kind of what I'm most forcefully reminded of by Vesnina walking away with this. Yeah, I mean, I know that during that dinner over Mexican food, I do I do recall you being uh, fairly like, you know, OK, if the other three make it through, there's there's clear storylines. And maybe with Vesnina, it's a little bit different. I don't think I agreed with that then. I, I definitely don't agree with it now. I mean, if anything, okay. no, 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 not in, a, not in a negative way, but just like I think that there's actually a really easy narrative with Vesnina. Now, whether or not that narrative resonates, that's a different question. I think that's probably one that you were trying, you were addressing more like, you know, Venus wins or, you know, gets through and wins Indian Wells. Obviously, you know, people care about that. Uh, Sveta, two-time major champion, um, you know, top 10 player. So she's up there. And obviously Pliskova, one of the best players of 2017 already. Yeah, on her way to number one. Yeah, and... yeah. So I see yeah. that. But I, I feel like the Vesnina narrative, actually now looking back on it, is easier to tell than a Kuznetsova narrative would have been. 
Um, Explain. Well, you know, you talk about with Vesnina. Arrives here, 16 years old, first time in America, goes to Indian Wells, doesn't even get into qualifying. And she sees convertibles and orange groves and mountains and this sunshine. She's like, oh my gosh, this place is beautiful. I want to play this tournament one day. Flash forward, last year, loses in the first round of qualifying to Julia Bozerup. A couple weeks later, makes the final as a qualifier of Charleston. A couple months later, makes a semifinal at Wimbledon. Wins doubles, Olympic gold. Wins the WTA finals um, with Akarina Makarava. Has a slow start to the season, but in Dubai, wins the title, first title um, uh, of the season with Makarova. Uh, Makarova, sorry. I'm trying to train myself oh, to keep we're changing, it the right. We're changing how we pronounce his name now? Well, it's not getting... correct. It's not Makarova. It's Makarova. I know, but it's not Sharapova, or it is Sharapova. Well, but she says Sharapova. Ekaterina Makarova, it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's like Daria, Ga- it's like Daria Gavrilova. That's how it's technically pronounced. But Daria says, no, Gavrilova. So then you say Gavrilova. So same with Sharapova. I know. It just seems like, it seems like asking a lot to change uh, someone's name, like, you know, 10 years into their career. Well, but people were just, she wasn't in a position to correct anybody. And there was nobody telling, you know what I mean? Like, okay. She was kind of like, I'll keep, I'll, I'll keep that in mind next time I say her name. It's just going to lead to more confusion and anguish in my life. But yeah, I, I can it's deal. It's all right. I'm just trying to do right by Kate. That's okay. all I'm trying to do. Katya. But By Katya or Kate. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they win that title in Dubai. She comes into Indian Wells feeling pretty good about things. And then she doesn't even fluke her way into this title. She absolutely paves her own way. You know, uh, uh, beating Shelby Rogers, beating Tamea Babosh, beating uh, Angelique Kerber, uh, beating uh, Venus Williams beating Kristina Mladenovic, and then beating Kuznetsova each time, especially in the last five matches that she played. You know, we know Vesnina can choke. We know that she gets nervous. Everybody in the locker room knows it as well. She doesn't. She slams the door every time in every single match of the last, like, four or five that she played. Her opposition made a push at the end of the sets. And she stood tall. And, and she, she served, had good holds, um, rebounded, and then in the final, I mean, to come back, Losing the first set on a dead net cord at 8-6 in the tiebreaker. So brutal. Heartbreaking, as she described it afterwards. And started a little sluggishly, fell behind 1-4. And then just battled her way back. And she had to fight from that position behind the scoreline the whole time. It was really looking like Kuznetsova was going to run run away with it. So this is just one of those runs where it kind of makes you reevaluate a little bit what you think of a player and what a certain player is capable yeah. of with Viznina. Um, you know, I was bummed for Kuznetsova because not she was trying to win her biggest title since 2009 China Open, if you can believe it. Mm. Um, she has made two uh, Premier Mandatory finals since then, but but this would have been her first Premier Mandatory title. Um, you know, so it would have been nice, but man, like the way that Vesnina did it, and I was I watched every single one of her matches that she played here, except for I didn't watch the, the Rogers match, but she was awesome. And she was great, and she was battling. And it, I don't know. It was just like a really good feel-good story. So the narrative is like easy to tell. Like the story is easy to tell. Whether people think care that, about it, I don't know. But I guess, I guess, in terms of the, I think thinking back to that dinner conversation, where I was wondering if how easy it would be as a narrative to you know sell or whatever. It's just irrelevance is what it means going forward. And that's I think what I would think I was most uncertain about then, is you know with Modenovic and. Pliskova, obviously they're two younger players and this would be a big launching pad title, you know, to be like, oh, this is, you know, this next big thing type player. And she has, uh, you know, this new Indian Wells title, which is her biggest title ever. And isn't that great? 
And with Kuznetsov, it'd be like, hey, this established quantity who's won two slams is now back, and we can point to her being completely backed by her having won this huge title. With Esnina, I guess I think there, I guess there must be a new path to sort of the top now that we should obviously acknowledge. I mean, because we are only, like I mentioned before, less than two years removed from there being a uh, Vinci Panetta slam final. And I think Vesnina completely fits into that sort of arc. You know, she is somebody who is a known, you know, I don't want to say draw filler, but somebody who's, you know, just goes in and punches in her time card and is a good, solid player. She's a great member of the community. A great member of the, you know? of the field, but not somebody yeah. who's stuck out necessarily. Sure, sure. And, but now, she, and now later on the seas, she finds a little bit of a wiggle room or some opening or a path emerges for her. And obviously, you know, she already did this by making it Wimbledon semifinal. So it's not like this is completely out of nowhere. But this was a path nowhere. that emerged. She just took a pickaxe to it. You're right, talking, no. You know, I, yeah. Like, you know, it's not like, again, I mean, Wimbledon semifinal was a little bit different. I think that in that situation, you were talking about a lot of factors that kind of came together to create that path. Uh, most notably, probably a very tired Sabokova, who who mm-hmm. played that really long, crazy match against Redvinska, and just didn't never recovered, and and that was a big one right there. And also, she narrowly beat, you know, a few points go one way or the other. She narrowly beat her good friend Ekaterina Makarova. Um, <laughs> so you know, like I, that was where I could see a little bit more, yeah, you know, lady luck shine down on you, uh, mm-hmm. maybe at Wimbledon. Here, I think it was very, very different. And, you know, she she obviously, you're talking about an, an off-peak Angelique Kerber. You're talking about a somewhat uh, exhausted and injured uh, Venus Williams. Uh, you're talking about an untested Mladenovic. So, yeah, there are, you know, a lot of ways, like, ways for her to, to say, okay, like, that was, that was a path. Um, but given her right. history and her propensity, you know, you just don't expect the way that those matches played out. You just didn't expect for her to, to hold on. You expected those situations to get way more complicated. And she kind of didn't. And it was it was crazy. I think it fits into just the sort of general narrative of what we're, what we're at least what was the maybe pre-narrative of the Andy Westerman women's side. And you might disagree with this. I'm not sure if we talked about this directly. But that this is a time when Serena's out. Sharapova's not back yet. Azarenka is out. Kvitova's out. Ivanovich just retired. And so there would be, and the players who were, left there are all especially with Kerber having a, a patchy start to the year um they're much more level and there's just so many players legitimately in the mix that Vesina was there with her sort of seat at the table of the you know of the or standing at the roulette wheel or whatever and just and she's earned that spot by you know getting those things there but it's just it spun her way this time and it could have this tournament could have been won by a dozen players in sort of similar fashion and it was Vesina who had the goods on the got herself to the final weekend and you know stood tough in that tough tough long three hour plus final to do it. Um, I guess I guess I'm just wondering in terms of going forward how if, if this is like a, a Panetta thing where you know this Indian Wells title leads to a slam within the next couple of years or if she's uh, if you think that Vesina will let's say you know play continue to play top ten caliber tennis and maybe contend for a Singapore spot, things like that? Do you think she can sustain this? Sure. I think she can. She might not. I mean, you know, <laughs> people want like, oh, what's going to happen? I don't freaking know. Like, you know, I mean, I've seen enough of this tour to know over the, over, you know, decades that, 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 that predictions are kind of pointless. I mean, in, she, you know, watching her match after match, a lot of the conversation in the press room, um, you know, just watching her form is like, you know, 
if she she has all the shots and she, and Elena knows that and she said that it's like I know I have all the shots and I'm an all court player I can do things that other players can't do in a lot of ways when you talk about Flavia Panetta she does remind me of Flavia in so far as you know great doubles players great mm-hmm. baseliners good technique you know Vizina probably had a few more like kind of uh mental hurdles that she needed to clear uh sometimes than than Flavi um but and Flavia is maybe a little bit more like she would break down physically a little bit more like throughout the mm-hmm. season. But but I think that for Vesnina, there's no reason to think that she couldn't make a charge. You know, I mean, obviously her ranking at this point is is buoyed by that Wimbledon semifinal. But after that Wimbledon semifinal, it's all hard court, which we know she can play on and win on. And she has a tremendous opportunity because she didn't do much uh, in singles because uh, she was preparing quite a bit for 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 doubles after Wimbledon. So, and she's not useless on clay. Yeah. She's not useless on clay. She's great on green clay. She, she's, she'll be a name to watch in Charleston. Yeah, um, made the final there last year. That exactly. was actually kind of her first I think big she's thing. like a two time finalist there. I want to say, or Ponte Vedra maybe, but she's played well on green clay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then red clay, you know, it's up for grabs, but going back to your original point, yes, this is, this is a time of opportunity. And, you know, if you talk to all of these women, I'm trying to think. I don't. I don't think I really remember a single one who who rejects this premise that setting aside Serena, they'll because they'll. They, I think that they maybe feel a little bit differently, even with Maria Petra. I mean, people talk about Petra. Petra had made past the quarterfinals uh, in Indian Wells for a long time, so it's not like she was going to like if she had been playing, would be like, oh, that Petra going to win the title here. Right. Tough, yeah. Never tough been condition a for her. her. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So you know, but but. All the players will say, outside of Serena, anyone can beat anyone on any given day. And they all know that. And the top players specifically say it a lot because they constantly are try- are, are kind of reminding people or saying at least how they feel. First rounds are not easy. You know, like yeah. I remember Radvanska telling me this in, in, in Sydney. She's like, look, honestly, seven, eight years ago, like first rounds were like way easy. And that was when I was worse. Yeah, like, and that's know, what and, and twenty times what players from fifteen years ago say. You know, you talk to like a Lindsay Davenport about what her opening rounds would be as a high seed at a slam, and it'd be you know one and two. You know, it was essentially just an interruption. You know, of your day. You know, between I don't know. You know, it was uneventful and unthreatening, and now it's sort of chaos, and we're in this position. And, I, and be, I'm sure it can be quantified in all sorts of interesting ways. But one of them is that just the rankings. If you look at the top spot. Uh, Kerber's is back to number one this week uh, with Serena pulling out of these two tournaments and Indy Wells, Miami and Kerber has a very, I'm not exactly sure it is, but it's like low 7,000s ranking point title or somewhere around there. And that's one of the lowest number one titles ever, which means it's not, you know, a dominant number one, but it means that everybody is close and that everyone is in the mix and there's no, you know, it's not a uh, rule of no one. There's no one having like a reign of terror across the tour or anything. And there's, and that makes it great for the Vezinas of the world. That's what you want. You know, you want it to be a free for all a bit. And even if it's it can be tough to make tidy narratives out of, I think it makes these tournaments uh, pretty compelling in their own ways. And I'm sure I'm guessing it will recongeal into something a little bit more striated at some point along the way. But for right now, uh, these next Miami and let's say even Rome and Madrid right now, there's no telling who's going to win those tournaments. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about, when, when you talk about striation, 
and things being open. They're definitely open, you know, but, you know, if you look at the premier champions, you know, this year, you're talking about Pliskova in Brisbane, uh, Conta in Sydney, um, obviously Serena winning the Australian Open, um, and then the Middle East with Pliskova winning Doha and um, Svitolina winning Dubai. Viznina was the biggest surprise. Yeah. So far, and she's a top 20 player. Like, whether mm-hmm. or not people want to think she is or isn't, and she made a comment about saying how, like, you know, I was playing, you know, the final of Indian Wells, and people were still calling me, like, a doubles player. Like, oh, you're good at doubles. Like, as though she had never been ranked, you know, you know, top 25 when she was, like, 22 years old. Um, so, you know, she she... Was it a crazy? I mean, I still think that it was like a miracle run. I obviously nobody saw it coming. She said she wouldn't have picked herself to win the tournament at the start of it. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I still do feel though that even with Vesnina's win, the crew, the the group that kind of does rule the tour at the moment is a pretty definable group. Well, there is actually, I was looking at the rankings a little further down, and there's a very weird drop-off between 15 and 16 in the rankings of over 1,000 points, uh, which is bizarre to see that big a gap like midway through. So between number, this is, I'm looking at Miami Live rankings right now, which are not official, but between number 15, Wozniacki, and number 16, Pavlyuchenkova, there's a 1,000-point gap yeah, from 3170 that. to 2141. And, and so then, and then like the, you know, all the way up to number eight above Wozniacki, which is all the way to Kuznetsova, are all within a thousand points of her, which includes players like Madison Keys, Fidelina, Venus, Kanta, now Vesnina. Uh, so Vesnina actually only moved up two slots. Yeah. Because she essentially just hopped over this huge chasm uh, in her in her win. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think there are some haves and haves now. So it's not like anybody, you know, can win Miami. Like I would be stunned if, you know, I don't know, Begu rolls off a Miami title. I mean, I do think there's a people who have kind of gotten themselves into the short list, it's just the short list maybe longer than ever. Yeah, and, and even though, and again, getting back to my point on, on kind of like things being divvied up, they're still being divvied up amongst a core group of players. It's not like, even when you start looking at the top 15 before you look at that like thousand point drop off, you know, Grand Canyon or whatever, mm-hmm. it's still the same names that get discussed. So even though, yes, obviously Simona's up there, obviously Radvanska's up there, they haven't had great years. They, they're, no, not, not they're not players that when a big tournament is happening right now that I key in on. Like right now, we do kind of have a big four, big five at the moment. And the weird thing is that like like if you went go back to like last year, you know, you were talking about slightly weird. At the time, they seemed like weird results, right? Like Azarenka wins Brisbane. Kuznetsova beats Puig to win uh, um Sydney, Sydney. Uh, Kerber wins the Australian Open. Middle East is Arani and Carla. Um, India Wells and obviously Miami were Victoria Azarenka again. But, like, these results this year seem way less weird to me than last year. Like, I, because that whole Middle East swing happened. That was a bit odd. Um, but here, I mean, you really, at the end of the day, are talking about a Pliskova, Svitolina, you know, Wozniacki, who's gotten herself into the mix. Modenovic, who's winning, you know, fairly consistently. Um, and those are the players that we keep seeing in, in the late stages of tournaments. So, and that, you know, won two titles each. Like, it, it's still kind of like a core group. And 
you know, we're still waiting for kind of the, the more familiar names, I guess, the Agas, the Simonas, the veterans to kind of fill, fill up, I suppose, or to, or to kickstart yeah. their seasons. All right. And maybe, and who, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I mean, this could be, it could be a very transitional sort of time. Uh, we'll see if, if these top players can hang on or and that includes, I would put Kerber in that list too. And if she's starting from a higher place absolutely, yeah. as somebody who's kind of flatlined to start the year. Uh, so after this long three hour, one minute final, a lot like last year, um, the men's final went very quick and was over pretty much by the time the women's press conference were over. And actually there's it literally was like Matt Van Tynan, who runs the media operations for in uh, had to literally take back the trophy from Elena Vesina off her uh, dais uh, in the press conference room off the table. Uh, and they need it. I guess they only have one version of it, which kind of surprised me. Yeah, they only uh, have one presentation trophy. Obviously, they have trophies for each player, but the presentation trophy on court, uh, they only have one of, which I suspect big, is going to change yeah. for 2018. It's a logistical flaw, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not like they don't have the money to make another one. Right. So um, they brought it out for Federer, and Federer won uh, in straight sets, not routing straight sets, you know, Federer paced close sets because Federer just plays fast. Um, winning his 25th Masters title over this time beating Stan Wawrinka. I think the 20th time he beat Stan. Uh, fifth time he won Indian Wells. Uh, Roger is like weirdly like back in running up the score mode. And I don't know. It all just feels like in some weird way like the last five years never happened. <laughs> yeah, it does you know? feel that way, it, yeah. It's just like, and it, especially, I guess, with Djokovic and Murray receding, I don't know. It, it's very much throwback o'clock. And in ATP land, and and you know it's just funny because on the one hand they're like next gen, next gen, next gen. At the same time, like please, old people, never leave us. So <laughs> uh, they have are having their cake and eating it too, or having it both ways or something. But yeah, Courtney, what do you make of Federer still being around, still, you know? Yeah, he's on he's, the bacon. Yeah, he's he's, he's still doing even his... more dadish ways. Yeah, he's still doing his thing. I mean, I will say I don't think that Murray's receding. Like, I mean, like, he obviously made the final in Doha to start the season, losing to Djokovic, which, I don't know, heads up, not that big of a deal. Uh, Obviously uh, got crazy outplayed by a rando uh, in terms of Misha Zverev and just like, what? Where did you come from? Um, At the Australian Open, won Dubai, and then um, obviously takes the early loss in Indian Wells, a tournament he hasn't played well at ever, really, since he made the final. So He's been like, up and down. He's been up and down in Indian Wells. It's like all or nothing for him there. He's made a semi and stuff since. Yeah, a long time ago. When was the last time he made semi? Murray made a semi in 2015. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, he's like, he's like had like, he's lost in his first or second match, like four out of the last seven years. Yeah. I mean, on the in whole. There, he, made a, he also made a quarter or fourth round. In a yeah. Semi. But on the whole, we know that Indian Wells flummoxes him in some yeah. way. So receding i think is a bit aggressive novak yeah for sure i think that there's definitely he he showed signs i think the win over delpo at the india wells um was good uh but then again getting flummoxed for like the second time in two weeks by nick curios which no okay. shade no shade on nick curios like that was an amazing performance both times but okay yeah. i'm gonna completely disagree with this because i think that Djokovic has had a better start to 2017 than murray has um i mean Djokovic. <laughs> You know, Djokovic has beaten Del Potro twice. Um, and I don't know that Murray has any good wins to his name really this year. He also beat Murray. Djokovic beat Murray in Doha, like you mentioned. And he, uh, you know, hasn't taken... He lost to Istamin, obviously, which was uh, 
uh, five set losses at a Grand Slam, so it was high profile. But Murray has now taken losses to Vashik Pospisil and Misha Zverev at big tournaments. That's not good. I mean, don't talk about Vashik as though Vashik is like nobody. Um, I'm talking about, but I mean, you, you said no, like, fair enough, fair, okay. like fair enough, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. I can see, no, I think it's way more random for him to lose to a Misha Zverev than to lose to Vashik Pospisil. Misha Zverev had actually been winning things. It was like top 50. Vashik was Vashik, outside top 100. Okay, he hasn't played well in the last 12 months, but we know what he can do. We know he's a good player. There's a reason why we know of, we know who Vashik Pospisil is in the same way that there's a reason why we know who Dennis Istomin is. Like, their ranking outside the top 100, like, skews things a little bit. But we know, like, like with all due respect, losing to Istomin and losing to Pospisil are way less bad losses than losing to Donskoy. Like, sorry, Roger, um, you are the king now and I apologize, but like, you know, like there are different range. You know, we, kn- we know that Isman and, and, and Pospisil are good players is what can I'm saying. We, we, I don't think we addressed it on the show when it happened. Donkey? Yes. Can we just talk about how that is like still <laughs> one of my favorite moments of 2017 is when Tennis.com made an autocorrect headline or maybe just a typo, I don't know, of, you know, Roger Federer stunned by Donkey in Dubai. I'm sure that it's, it was autocorrect. It's, it's, the sim- it's the simple things that make my life <laughs> It was so delicious. Delightful. It's the way that, like, TweetDeck autocorrects Masaki to mistake uh, oh. for me, and I can't change it. It always does it. So I have to catch it and, re- and fix it. So at this point, I'm kind of trained to, like, not hit tweet when it's a Masaki Doi tweet until I double-check it, but... It screwed me over a few times. Uh, but yes, poor, poor Evgeny Donskoy. But anyway, um, on to Roger. I guess Roger's going to keep winning stuff. I mean, I don't even sure he's going to play a full schedule. It's interesting with him. He's like, I think I saw a Monte Carlo entry list today, and he's not on it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think Which that he would play sense. it. Which makes sense. Yeah. He should play an absolutely limited clay schedule. Like, he should be, gun- he should be gunning for Wimbledon and, and the U.S. Open. Uh, I don't know if this is true. I read on Twitter that he's basically secured like the ATP finals already. Not like, yeah. uh, but like effectively. Well, more or less because they have, unlike WTA, they have an exemption for slam winners. And oh, so he's already right. getting that. Okay. And so he would have to like, there had to be another slam winner who was like, yeah, outside the, the chill the situation. Yeah. 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 And so that's unlikely. Yeah. So he's pretty much in. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, he, I would fully expect him to play a limited schedule. I would fully expect for him at this point, especially playing with house money, to really, really focus on the slams. But also, like, the dude is just loving it. Like, there, I've said this before on the podcast, and I've written it before, I remember, like, when I used to write for Sports Illustrated. Like, no one sits in the throne like Roger Federer. Not even Serena. It- Serena's pretty good at it, but I feel like even Roger, because Roger, like... He just loves the love and he gets it. And there's and just he, like, he's just a different person. Like when he's number, like, and he's not number one, obviously in the rankings, but right now he's in the throne. And power, it's like, yeah. Right it, yeah. And it, 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 it's just like a beautiful thing for him. Like everything's yeah. working out. Like my kids are happy. My wife's happy. Everything's happening. I step on a court. There's huge screams. I can do stupid gift things. And everybody goes crazy. I can do the stupid boy band thing. That's terrible. And everybody's oh like, Oh my God, you're so amazing. I'm sorry. Sidebar. That thing was terrible. Sidebar. I like all three of them. I like, you know, Sarah Foster and the, the, the Haas family. That's the whole about. I cannot, you know me, like we spent time on this show creating our own like dream ATP boy bands. 
And if you had come up with a configuration, Haas, Federer, Dimitrov, I'd have been like, oh, a little weird, but I would roll with it. But these performances are so just like uncomfortably terrible and they don't seem to know what they're doing. And the song is so oddly earnest. It's real bad. It's real bad. And this and is I, coming from a I guy wanna... who loves this shit. He loves it. You love terrible stuff. I do. And this is not even working for me. <laughs> I would just love to be in there as a consultant for them. I would have them do something a little bit more accessible. And they're arranging a little bit at least mid-tempo. My God. They're just doing some... some it's, it's like rough. at least actually do I want it that way by the Backstreet Boys. You know, mm-hmm. like easy to sing, no range, actually kind of shouty in the chorus. So you can just shout it. It's fine. Yeah, and it would, it would auto tune. You could do much more acting to it. I, I guess, I know that I guess apparently the um, Haas' father, Foss, yeah, Foster, Foster, like yeah. co wrote this song that they're sure. singing. So it's like family. Uh, you know, obligation to perform it and keep it going in 2017. But like, but literally, no man has Peter Cetera's voice. So no. why, it, it would be like, hey ladies, why don't you sing the American National Anthem? But the hold Whitney on, Houston the Whitney yeah. Houston version. It's like, you literally can't do it. Yeah. Not feasible. And how dare you? Because that's how ladies are. They stand up for themselves. And they say <laughs> no. But these guys got bullied into this little one-handed backhand club. It was terrible. I'm sorry, I can't watch it. They like it. I, I see a opening here um, before we get to more general ATP minutia, and there's a bunch. Um, but to talk, you, you mentioned ladies standing up for themselves, and there was a lot of discussion Sunday afternoon, which I wasn't even honestly watching these matches because I was uh, in transit for most of the day, uh, just about the impatience or intransigence or whatever you want to say about ATP commentators, observers fans, whatever, you know, foot and media uh, foot tapping about how long the women's final was going. Um, the order of play had the women starting at 11 a.m., which is early for a final. I can't I can't think of a final that starts any locally in the local time that early anywhere else in the world. So we go early at one at 11 a.m. The men get a not before one t- start time, which is as all start times are in tennis and not before. So like a you know, earliest possible limit, but can't be any time after that by definition of the phrase, not before. And it winds up being on the longer end of the, you know, common range of matches, but nothing too crazy being right at the three hour mark. Um, Courtney, I guess what was, what was the, cause I wasn't paying attention to it besides seeing, I wasn't there was what was the vibe like and what were the sort of reactions to it? Like on, on all sides. I will be this, honest. Yeah. I don't really know how this whole thing started. Bronco knows. Bronco knows. <laughs> Bronco has thoughts. Are you done, buddy? Bronco Nguyen, yeah. long time WTA supporter. Very vocal. He is a WTA watchdog. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I don't really know how it all started um, because I was live blogging the final. And when I'm live blogging, I'm like locked in, headphones on, not really checking Twitter very much. But slowly I started to see like a groundswell of like people kind of talking around it just because of my timeline um, and people referencing that there were people who are frustrated. And, you know, uh, I think that, that, you know, the main one that I feel like kind of kicked things off was a tweet from, from Mark Petchy, who's a, a, a commentator for sky, <clears throat> a British uh, broadcaster who 
who obviously um, in Britain, this is maybe important, but in Britain, yes. the, um, the the broadcast rights are split. So so Sky covers the ATP and BT Sport has the WTA. So when the final for the women is going long and it's it's pushing the window back for the guys, right? Like they've obviously advertised that it's going to start at 9 p.m., uh, UK time or something like that, mm-hmm. and it's not starting for like another hour or something like that. Like their sh- viewers are tuning in to watch this thing, and they're not seeing that thing. So, Mark and it was Pitt, late in the UK too. Very late in the UK, so it was super nighttime. So, yeah. So I guess Petchy said, you know, was saying that the the final, the men's final was delayed, um, which probably that choice of language uh, would have sparked things off. You know, uh, yeah. and that I think that that's what happened. I will say this. Maybe that was a tweet at me actually. Now that I think, yeah, that I think was. it was. It, it was either to outwardly or to you because you said hog the stage, ladies, and then I think he maybe came at you and said like you're saying it's okay that the men's final is delayed, and the tone of it was just a bit aggressive. Like you know what I mean? It's like you can make your point using different words. It it sadly I think we react to it in a certain way because we know that this is not you know it's code. A, it's co and it's also just it's just not unindicative of often the dismissiveness of towards women's tennis in men's tennis circles. Yes. I mean Mark Petchy was hardly the first person who works in men's tennis or is a former men's tennis player or current men's tennis player to say like, gosh, this women's match is, you know, yeah, I think a waste Bor- of time. I think Boris Becker was like he tweeted like, Oh, impatiently waiting like very sarcastically, like for the men's final to start, and it was all in particular offensive. Because these two were putting on a great show. It was a fantastic yeah. match. It went for a full three sets. I've tweeted and this. And, and it's a big it. freaking match. It's, it's a big freaking match. It's the final of the quote unquote fifth slam. Yeah, it's the My biggest gosh. It's the biggest WTA tournament of the year. Okay. And, and this regular is. Regular tournaments, yeah. Right, exactly. And, 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 you know, this is what's happening. And so it was just really, really, you know, offensive in that way. Um, you know, I had tweeted and, and I think it, it, Ben knows this because I've been screaming, screaming this kind of catchphrase throughout the two weeks of Indian Wells about a variety of topics. But what more do you want? What can we possibly as the WTA? I'm a, I'm a WTA employee. Like, you know, I am. I'm, my job is to sell the tour, is to tell the, the stories, is to report on it, to get people interested in the tour. And my reaction to like these sorts of incidents and, and other comments that you hear around the press room it's just like, what more can we possibly give you? If we give you a boring, you know, David Kane always brings this up. Like Elena Vezina in the last 12 months has been part of a criticized match for the length because it was too short, a semifinal <laughs> against uh, Serena Williams in the, in the, at Wimbledon. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. then, like, way too long, which was her final against, like, Svetlana Kuznetsova. I, hadn't, like, I hadn't connected those dots. Yeah, that is too perfect. D- DK has all of the, uh, the Vezina thoughts uh, and the Vezina facts. But it's true. He also it's has like, all the Voskova wave of facts and all the other facts. He has a lot of facts. Well, now he has all the the uh, Potapova facts. Vikliansova? Does he have Vikliansova? No, facts those are yet? mine. The Vikli the okay. Vikli facts Ooh. are mine. I have an epic I'm, forty minute got, interview. I'm, I'm amazed you got a Russian in the draft. I gotta say, <laughs> it's pretty good. You know, sometimes I I wiggle in there um, okay. and, and steal them from him. But yeah, so you know, I'm used to it. 
two two said final. Oh, women's women's tennis is a joke. It, it, it you know this person got beat up. It wasn't even competitive. Ah, get them out of there. How dare they ask for equal prize money? How dare be dare they be given equal prize money? Oh, play a three set match. Oh, freaking hell! Get these women out of there. Like I don't want to see this. Who are these people? There are no names. What a random final. Like blah 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 blah. It you cannot win. The sweet spot for women's tennis is so small, and you know if Serena's dominating then the rest of the field is an absolute joke. And if Serena's not dominating and it's a, a field of opportunity, then it's like, oh, the women's field is so weak, as opposed to like, no, the, the women's field is so deep. Like, that's what we mean when number 50 can beat number two on any given day. That's why we pay attention from day one. That's why we pay attention all the way through. There's never a gimme in WTA tennis, not even when Serena's playing people. So this whole idea of like, oh... I don't know. Like, I, I'm just kind of like, what do you people want from me? You know, like, you, you know, oh, I hear these reporters sitting behind me. Oh, there's been 13 breaks already through like two sets. I'm like, yeah, because one got broken and the other got broken. She broke right back. Like, it, it's not just breaking for breaking sake. And it's it's yeah. it's strategic. And it's, not, and it's not and it's not getting broken and then rolling over and saying, I'll get them next set. Right. Whatever. It, it was yeah. all right there. And that match had everything that you want from a women's tennis match. And, and it still just wasn't enough because of broadcast windows, because of, which is one thing because of basic misogyny, which is another thing. I mean, I had a, a reporter standing literally right next to me. I was telling Ben this before we came on air, you know, literally two feet from me having a conversation with another reporter, one male reporter, one female reporter, basically saying in true, not being sarcastic at all. This is all Billie Jean King's fault. This is, all, you know, because now we have to deal with this. And just like sitting there like two feet. You know me. Nobody. There's no like, there's no, I'm not like sitting under a shroud. Like people know like where my stance is and what I do for a living and who employs me and how I feel about all of this. And still like to have the gall and like the weird privilege, like stand there and say that and not think that I'm going to like stand up and be like, dude, what? But it was just like such an annoying thing to have to like even have Elena Vizina have to defend herself in her press conference. Yeah. And it, I, I think you mentioning the fact that the opposite happened at Wimbledon with her having to defend her for being too short. Uh, Vizina also just it brings it full circle nicely. And we talked about this after the Australian Open, how or maybe I don't know if we talked about it on the show. But we certainly talked about it offline, how the exact same set of facts uh, for men's and women's results can be just fun. It's just it's just lazy so often to to try to bring down the women and diminish them and what they're doing when they can be doing some pretty pretty cool stuff but it was good to see in the backlash i guess or the standing up for it i mean i i read a bunch of the like hannah wilkes and i had a lot of good tweets about it i'll in particular stood out love you so hannah. i mean it, it's, it's yeah so it's good seeing people stand up for it. the one thing i will say in a little bit defense of the frustration and this is gonna be more of an issue in the u.s too um, it's going to be tough having combined events on separate networks. That's weird. That's but that, not. But a it new, wasn't on separate networks thing. here. No, I know not here, but in the, in the UK in the Petchy situation. Oh, okay. You said US. So, right. I meant I meant I meant sorry, but I meant in the US. It's going to start being a thing even more once the tour shifts to Europe, and like Madrid and Rome are going to be divided between one between women being on BN and men being on Tennis Channel. Uh, it's just going to be it's going to be a fact of life, and there are going to be times I'm sure when Tennis Channel might you know have some situation where some women's match goes long and they have no programming to show and they're sort of tapping their feet in some way i don't think they, they can do it however with a, however little annoyance or dismissiveness they want but they can also just be like well 
you know, there's a great match over there and we're waiting for ours to start. Or it's just a really long match over there. It doesn't have to be a good match. I mean, plenty of long matches aren't good, you know. The whatever. men's semifinals were short. They were perfunctory. Mm-hmm. And they were, un- they were like, complete lack of drama. They ended up having to go to the, to, you know, pulling out the, the Kuznetsova Pliskova semifinal and airing that on ESPN to fill the time, which was a fantastic match. And honestly, in my opinion, maybe the best quality match of the of the tournament. So if you haven't seen it, you should definitely pull it up. It was amazing. But, um, you know, everybody scratches everybody else's back. Like, it's just, it's a package deal. Just deal with it. And, and these, these tickets, and that's the other thing, they're, the tickets are sold jointly. And, like, especially in last year in Newell's, um, last year the men's final was complete garbage. Like, literal. There was a bagel set. It was a 6-2, 6-0 Masters final. It Between, was like, joke. two it top five players? Like, well, whatever Ronich was ranked at, the, at that point, it was get, moving up in towards the top five. But he was, like, came up a little bit hurt or whatever, which he did several other times last year, too. And it was a terrible final. But luckily, people had a good day at the tennis because there was a very compelling straight sets. Oh, no, three sets? Straight. No, straight, straight sets as a rank of Serena final, which had lots of ups and downs and good play and it's compelling and all sorts and of And with all stuff. due respect, there were more people in the stands for Serena and Vika than there were for Novak and Milos. There mm-hmm. were. If you were out there, yeah. you saw it, you knew. So yeah. there was going to come a day when all of these arguments that get made about, you know, deriding women's tennis, deriding whatever, spinning everything negatively. Oh, it means a lack of depth. Oh, it means this, this and that. Oh, they shouldn't get equal prize money. All that's going to come bite everybody in the butt later. I'm sorry. It's it's happening. We all know that the cliff is coming. And so it doesn't make any sense to me why everyone feels the need to continue with these myths. It's not good for the sport. You want to talk about what's not good for the sport? That's not good for the sport. So, you know, like, I'm not saying celebrate every single thing that happens, but on this day, between two competitors who are battling on a 140-degree court for th- over three hours for, like, one of the biggest titles of their career, and the underdog won. Like, and you still got to see Roger win. Like, <laughs> what's... Wh- who lost here? So why are we bitching? Why are we moaning? I completely agree. I mean, that's the thing, you know, I see so often with... Especially with more casual fans, like when my parents come to tennis tournaments, which isn't often, they usually go to like one day, or they used to like go to like one day of Washington every two years or something. Or my mom, I mean my mom more in particular, and she'll be like, "Oh, we saw a wonderful match," and it was like, "What was it?" It was like basically whatever was on the stadium when she arrived. Right. And she had a swell time. She had a swell time. <laughs> and, and you know, it was not she's not hard to please. And I'm sure, and with this being a really good match and a high stakes match and a match with lots of drama. And I mean, talking about Kuznets of a Vezina right now, uh, I'm sure everyone was left left very happy, you know. And um, if unless you had like a flight to catch or something, you could stay and watch Roger. And the Roger match was very fast and was a a tasty dessert after this meaty prime steak yeah. that the women served and, up. And speaking of prime, it was apparently uh, the time the weird time situation made it prime time in Russia. The other thing I was going to say about that in terms of BT frustration or, or Petri frustration, or whatever other people were frustrated in terms of men's commentary, is that you can't expect for a tournament that happens eight time zones away to be convenient. Like, if it is, that's incredible luck. But Lord knows it's not usually the case. I mean, Lord knows I pull crazy hours or just decide to skip matches in Asia when they're not convenient to me. I just don't understand. I get that you get it. And I get that it's frustrating. You know, like I was talking to reporters who were on site and not on site at Indian Wells, but were in Indian Wells and did not come to the Sunday final. Why? 
because there was no way that Vavrinka and Federer were going to finish in time before their deadlines. So they mm. weren't even going to be able to file off the European, men's final. Yeah. yeah, European deadlines. So I get the pragmatic problem, you know, of when a final goes long. Oh, I'm against deadline. Oh, it's screwing with my deadline. We've all, it's all happened to us, you know? It's like, well, that's not going to happen. I got to call an audible. So I get the personal and professional um, frustration that happens. And I, and I get what Petchy's com- where Petchy's coming from. Just like, sure. you know, like I'm trying to like, broadcast this final people want to see it it's it's roger stan like you know like this is frustrating i get that what i don't understand is why denigrate what's happening like i like the like you want to make that policy discussion you want to have a policy discussion about whether or not the women should be starting at 11 whether or not they should be splitting the finals putting the women on saturday one thing about india wells the women do an, an extra day's work their tournament starts a day earlier than the guys. That's right, yeah. Um, so you want to talk about equal pay for equal work, whatever. Anyways, <laughs> like, but I also, but I also think you know, and maybe the other suggestion could be, and this would be worse for UK time slots, whatever. But it might be a more, uh, a less uh, a precarious time slot if they just made the not before time for the men a half hour, or an hour later. Right. You know, if it was just not before it 11, it was 11 a.m. for the women, and then not before two. For the men, and granted, right. there might be some dead time in there. Like build in three hours, hour-long final. Exactly, but. build in three hours as your window, right? Yeah. I mean, like that just makes sense. But it works. So, so, so yeah. If you want to, but you want to have those policy discussions about split finals. Women should go Saturday. Men should go Sunday, or flip the times. Men should start at eleven. Women go after, whatever. Totally legitimate business discussions to have. Those are not discussions that should be being had while these women are playing. It, should, also, it is and, not and, and a discussion that should be had that then somehow gets contorted or spun to be like, oh, it's these two. It's their fault that this is happening. Like, you know what this, I mean? Like, what is that? It's a waste of time. It's yeah. basically kind of. It's, it's, it's a so. pointless discussion. It's, it's not a bad discussion to have. It's just, it's just not the time. And it just, and it shows, you know, just a bit of, 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 of yeah, disrespect. There's no way around it. Like I was telling Ben earlier today, if it had been a rain delay, I don't think people would have been mad at the rain delay. Not in the same way. That delayed that delayed the men's final. But somehow, two women battling it out and playing their hearts out. And I can tell you that a lot of people who were complaining, particularly in the press room, were not watching the final. They yeah. were complaining about it, but they were like surfing the internet. I saw. I know. I see you guys. I see it. <laughs> Don't start with me. You weren't even watching to know if it was quality. You just assumed that it was crap because you just don't want to watch it. Fair. But then just keep your mouth shut. That's all right. That's always an option. Even, it may surprise people, but even I understand that it's an option. That sometimes isn't, that your pin, I keep, isn't that your pinned tweet? It basically, sometimes there are days where you just don't say something. You want to, but you don't because it's not appropriate. So in that situation, yeah, I don't know. I have tons of thoughts on it. Whatever. I've aired all of them out, but... It's just, it was a frustrating thing, and I just felt really bad for Elena Vezina because, like, she had this wonderful moment, like, weirdly overshadowed, you know, just slightly. It wasn't, like, a massive blow-up. She still looked with a smile on her face. It didn't ruin her. She was fine. She was like, whatever, give my trophy to Roger. I don't care. Like, I'm good. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the less uh, contentious moments before Sunday in this quarter of death that happened on the men's side, which wound up with a illness, sadly, uh, determining the end of it uh, and a much anticipated part of it. But basically how it played out was Djokovic beat Del Potro for the second week in a row. 
um, beat him in Acapulco on a long uh, three-setter, and then beat him in, in Indian Wells in a shorter three-setter, and Djokovic was really good in that match. And then he turned around and played a little bit early the next day, or earlier than he expected. I think it was a night match against uh, Del Potro, and then he played like a kind of midday match the next day against Kyrgios and got beaten by Kyrgios, and Djokovic was fairly salty about the scheduling, and also, I'm sure, not thrilled with losing to Kyrgios for a second week in a row, or a second tournament in a row, anyway. Um, and then Federer thrashed Nadal in one of the strangest Federer Nadal matches ever, um, with him just, like, ripping high backhand winners everywhere. It was like, Roger, if you knew like how to do this the whole time, it was like, Roger, if you knew how to do this the whole time, why weren't you doing it? It was like, and his narrative was like, my dad told me to hit my backhands. It was like, did Robert not come up with this in 2006? Like, what Like what, what took you so long to suddenly click? And granted, maybe, you know, the Nadal back, a forehand into Roger's backhand isn't as potent as it was at its peak, but it just made it look so easy. And it was very Twilight Zone-y, that match. That match made me uncomfortable. I was like, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> this is not how this works. It's just like, I don't know. It's like, it's, yeah. It was, I mean, it was you weird. know, first of all, maybe parents aren't terrible coaches. Just throwing that out there. there. Secondly, mm-hmm. not all necessarily, yeah. Not all necessarily. Robert seems to know his his business. He's yeah. he's watched a lot of great tennis, and he's got some thoughts, and so maybe he should share them. And it works. Lord knows that Lord knows that Orsine has her thoughts. She sat there and watched a lot of tennis, and she, you know, Serena, even even in these, maybe not in the full Patrick era, but for a long time, those were get out of Melbourne. Exactly, that was exactly what I was thinking of the get out of Melbourne moment. Yeah, where she was standing way back in the. Uh, in the Melbourne Melbourne uh, sprint and it was like, get up, get up forward. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, Roger just that match against Rafa was weird. I mean, it was, yeah, I don't know. I just want, I, I would call Mulder and Scully to try and investigate that one. That would make no sense, but it was awesome. I mean, it was great for him. And I think I remember you and I maybe came in to work. Uh, I think you gave me a ride and we both like walked to our desk and we were sitting next to Carol Bouchard. And and it was literally, the whole discussion was like, if Rafa can't beat Roger here on this court, on this the surface. Slow, high bouncing court. Slow, high bouncing, you know, favoring the explosive topspin forehand, like, bro, bro. And sure enough. And, and, and Rafa. Not even sure enough. He got killed. He got killed. And that, and, and that four, and, it, and what it really did expose is precisely what you said, Ben, is that forehand is not doing what it needs to do just hasn't been all year and uh last year yeah for a while and and that's you know the biggest thing that he needs to fix but without it it's uh yeah it it it's an interesting question who's had the more disappointing year to start so far novak andy or rafa i mean definitely not rafa rafa made an australian open final um so i can't pick him um but I would say... But it's an interesting people, conversation to have. Like, I wouldn't pick Rafa either. At the but same it's time, like, it's not great. Like, you know, yeah, he's bad. He, yeah. he lost his award. I will say, I would not say Rafa, if I was grading, you know, if I was doing, you know, like their report cards that John Wertheim does, like mid-slams, and I guess you might have done them too at SI at some points, um, I would give Rafa something like a B plus. I I think it's, you know, just be maybe even a straight B. But the the wins he's had haven't surprised me. He's beating players we think he'll beat. You know, he beat Dimitrov in the Austrian Open semis, and before that, he beat Monfils and Ronic. Actually, I did think Ronic would beat him, so I take that back. I thought Ronic would win that match. But Dimitrov should have beat. I mean, like Dimitrov shouldn't have yeah. been that close to him. Do you know what I mean? Like I, it was a great I, win for Rafa, but like I never thought Grigor 
would have been that close to beating Rafa. Yeah, but just for Ra- for Rafa taking two losses on hard court, on and not, I mean, Australia was a medium fast hard court this year, maybe maybe just straight that's medium. True. That's true. That's true. And, every, yeah, yeah. and everything looks so fast now. If it's even medium, we're like, wow, it's crazy. Um, but now um, those two losses to somebody he had a great head to head against were surprising, and now actually I think his head to head against Roger away from clay court is even. I think it's like yeah. 10 all now, um, which is an interesting sort of stat. Um, so yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting moment in the rivalry. Rob, Roger has won three straight matches against Rafa for the first time in his career against him. That's crazy. So That's a good I mean, do, doing wonderful new things at the age of 35, uh, just, you know, it, He's it's, just, uh, yeah, it, it's so, I it's mean, weird. It's, it's weird. weird. It's weird. Not in a bad way. Like I'm, as people know, in with respect to my trajectory within tennis, I'm not a big Roger fan, never have been. But the guy has grown on you, has he not? I've he seen has. It. No, no, no. Of course, as yeah. he's become more of an underdog. I like underdogs. That's why I never liked Roger. Like, yeah. I don't like people who win easily. It bugs me. I, I just don't, I just personally, it's just how I'm hardwired. You don't respond to that. Yeah. yeah it, you know, I like the battle. I like people who fail. I like the lovable losers. That's just how I am. Um, and and Roger's never been that. And then like obviously the last you know, year, two years, it's kind of felt that a little bit more. Like I felt like I found myself rooting for him to try and like break that Novak curse, rooting for him to kind of, you know, do something um, that would, you know, again, it's good for tennis to be able to show that at that age, you can still win, still play at the top level. I just didn't see this year happening the way that it has. And, um, you know, I think that he, that Australian Open final continues to confound me not sure that I've even still processed what happened there because I just still think that Rafa should really should have won it. And I, and I mm-hmm. can't decide whether or not that's on Rafa or on fed that like fed stepped up or Rafa just completely folded, but it, it, it was weird that final. Um, and then his run to the, to the, to the title in Indian Wells, like the, the, the quarter of death ended up not being that outside of the, the match against Rafa. Well, especially in just because there was that letdown where Curious withdrew. Yes, and oh, I mean, that was that was the that was the big letdown. And by the way, like I came home yesterday from India Wells, and I was talking to my parents, and literally they could not stop talking about how much they love Nick Curious. Oh, really? Which was like super weird. Like they've never been Curious people. Um, but my mom and my dad, they were just like, oh man, I loved how he played and the way that he beat Novak. And my mom was just like, oh, like very like momish about him. Like, oh, he's just like a little kid and he's doing this thing. And my dad was very like jockish about him. Like, oh, he was, he just seemed like he really loved getting like, he wanted to prove to Novak that like nothing Novak could do would bother him. Like It with was the, like, a- yeah. You yeah, know, it was kind of a dickish performance, which was no, amazing. Which was great because that's what you see in this sort of Rosoli Soderlingish way. I mean, yes, Kyrgios has all you of have that, to have that age. And and Kyrgios has that and seeing him beat Djokovic back to back weeks. And granted, I will I do grant Djokovic a a small but you know legible asterisk for having played Del Potro in long three setters both times less than 24 hours before he played Kyrgios. But yeah, those were big wins. And he being 2-0 against Djokovic, his crazy stat where he's beaten each of those big three guys, uh, adding Federer and Nadal in their first meeting. I mean, the kid is very prime time. It seems to be in a really good place right now. And he's probably after Federer and I'll throw in Sam Quarry, uh, you know, the biggest winner of this of this sort of month and last month in men's tennis. 
He's had a it's had a huge He's been so good. Ride. Yeah. But but like my point about my parents is just like I mean my parents are like tennis people insofar as like they are tennis people, they love it. But also because I'm in tennis, they watch and, and they're a little bit more engaged and, and whatnot. And I'll just say, hi, Dad, because I know you're going to listen to this tomorrow morning because sometimes I wake up and I hear my voice and I'm like, oh, it's weird. Um, <laughs> but but that being said, like they are casual fans. They, they, they tune in when it's on the television. They don't watch streams. So the fact that it was all on Tennis Channel and ESPN, they were able to watch it. And they just love the kid. He just plays an explosive level of ten and type of tennis that's different, and and they loved it. And it's why people care about Nick is they know he's that good. They know he is that box office. He is so friggin' box office, and it's it's his as problematic as you may think he is, or as difficult as he might be to deal with, or whatever. The sport will be much better off, uh, certainly economically, and also just in terms of interest and depth and compellingness with him there and we'll see you know I'm, I'm sure there will be more ebbs and flows in his you know career uh he still doesn't have a coach which i feel like is obviously i mean ricky diamond made a, a tweet where he said like nominees for coach of the year so far like ivan lubicic parentheses coach of roger Federer, and nick kyrgios parentheses coach of nick kyrgios um i'm not sure i'm not sure where i exactly land on the oh he's just des- i don't think he desperately needs a coach when he's beaten djokovic twice in the last month that seems nuts, but at the same time, I think it w- couldn't. Uh, the the perfect coach would be a good influence if find someone less than perfect. I don't know. If you're, this goes back to like comments. I know that I, I an argument that I made with ta- about Taylor Townsend years ago, and comments that that Naomi Osaka made last year at the U.S. Open, and I think they they both kind of like apply to Kyrgios, which is if you're good enough, you don't need the standard trappings. It, you know, Naomi Osaka was had this whole thing on, on experience, which really, you know, made me think about the concept of experience a little bit more. But she was just saying, like, but if you're good enough, you don't need experience. You're just sure, good enough. Sure, it's like Martina Hengis didn't need experience when she arrived on this sport. Yeah. Right. You know, like, if it, but, and and interestingly, I revisited the idea with her this week at Indian Wells. And I was like, yeah, you said this thing about experience before because she lost to... Madison Keys um, in Indian Wells again, and, and she got really nervous and admitted to being nervous and getting overwhelmed by the court and the occasion and everything. Um, having also obviously months earlier nearly beating Keys at the U.S. Open, and I was like, "Do you really do you do you still stand by that take that you know experience doesn't matter?" And she said, "Yes, it doesn't. If you're good enough, it doesn't matter." And I was like, "Okay, fair enough." And I feel like with Nick, it's the same way. Like back when we were talking about Taylor Townsend years ago with the whole dust up with the USTA. I was like, look, this kid is the junior number one. Who are you to criticize? If she's good enough to overcome X, Y, Z, then she's she's fine. And when she hits that wall, then we can talk about it. But right and now, she may have. Yeah. and she may have. But right now, at back back then, I'm like, what are we talking about here? And I feel like both of those things kind of apply to Nick. Like, he's doing what he's doing solo unconventional you know he clearly i think has been the most engaged in the first three months of any three months that he's had you know in tennis it's getting there he's young and the kid is box office and i think that it's very dangerous to conflate what you like with what is good with the sport or what you like with what is good for the sport and just because you don't like him and just because you think that he's done xyz things bad or you think he's a bad guy I don't think that, but if you think that, fine. 
But just because you think that doesn't mean that he's bad for the sport. Because all of the information that I get back, whether you look at crowds, whether you talk to people and see who they like watching playing, uh, casual endorsement offers, endorsement offers, all that. Nick Kyrgios is box office. He just is. Yeah. And he's the, I was talking to, to, I was talking to Jerry Nathan. I think I'll pronounce that right. Who's the, he's been writing a lot about uh, men's tennis lately for Deadspin. And he was saying they were having like some like Deadspin Slack discussion or something. And they said like Kyrgios is one of the, you know, like definitely like five or 10 most dead spinny athletes out there right now. He just has like all of that sort of compellingness and aestheticness and, you know, engagingness that they look for and they're sort of irreverent and flashy or whatever. I ever want to call Deadspin sports coverage, you know, and he is very much that vibe. And that's something tennis can certainly benefit from. It really can. I mean, like, you know, you and I have had this discussion before about this tension within tennis of like wanting to remain this niche sport and, and wanting to break out. And obviously Ben and I are Americans. So we're talking about breaking out within America. I know that tennis is a big sport, in other countries can always be bigger it can always be bigger and sorry but at least from the american perspective like tennis was big when connor's was doing his thing when mcenroe was doing his thing like when there was controversy when there was spit and fire we nastasi, love roddick nastasi yeah. roddick doing what he's doing you know like you know back when capriotti and and and, and serena and venus were sniping at hingis like Conflict matters. It's not being a gentleman and shaking hands and like going on court and playing beautiful tennis does not necessarily resonate in one of the biggest markets in the world. And as much as like people want to like dismiss America for being stupid, which we are, we're freaking idiots right now. But we have a lot of money and that money can fund tournaments and fund television deals and fund sponsor deals to players like we are a major market. You do have to listen to a little bit of what America needs. We host a slam in three of the nine masters. So, you know, I mean, sorry. Uh, Yeah. So (laughs) the other, the other thing I will say, um, speaking of just being Americans and it shows what kind of weird, how weird American tennis coverage is compared to the rest of the world. I mean, can you imagine uh, like the tennis podcast, our British court uh, opposite numbers across the pond going this long an episode without mentioning their home country semifinalist. Which we have not done barely. Oh, Jack, Jack Sock! Sock. <laughs> right, Jack Sock made the semifinals of Indian Wells, and he's like gotten zero mention on this show so far. But Jack Sock made his best his breakout. I have a thought on uh, that, but I'll let you. I'll let you continue. Yeah, but but Jack, yeah, please have all your thoughts soon. But Jack, um, my favorite Jack Sock stat, which I was surprised by, is Jack Sock has the longest sh- active streak of reaching quarterfinals right now, which is only three. But still, he made the he made the quarters in both Shanghai and Paris, and now made semis in Indian Wells, and it's just quietly like becoming a more solid player. And and he's obviously had his clear weaknesses. He's had a lot of matches where he's broken down physically or mentally, um, but he's piecing it together, and he's you know getting deeper in the top fifty and might I'm sorry top in the top into the top twenty. And you know if all goes well for him, maybe he'll be you know knocking on the door of the top ten as there seems to be some possible turnover. Happening there, you know, with Burdich not being the force he once was with Ferrer, packing up and leaving the top 10 for good, it looks like. Sock is more in the mix, which just sounds like a laundry, you know, visual that I'm putting there. But uh, he's more in the mix than before, and he seems to be doing things better in, in the right way. So that's my obligatory 
Jack Sock discussion, which I, again, I just think it's surreal. And you know, this is what you're going to say, that we can be Americans and not lead the show with Jack Sock, much less have him an hour into the show. <laughs> yeah, much too. I'm sure we'll get an angry email from Max Eisenbud soon. But, um, he, and, he beat, um, and he beat Nisha Corey, which was a big yeah, win. No, it was, his it was first a, top five win. Yeah, it was a very big win. And, and, and Jack has been on the radar. He's been, you know, in a lot of ways, tapped as being the next Roddick, you know, He's American curious without all of the controversy. He plays a, a really dynamic game. People like watching it. Um, you know, he's a hot shot maker. He likes doing that. And it's just been a matter of, of, of waiting for Jack, not unlike Nick, to really focus and be like, dude, be ambitious. Like, don't just, you know, this is always a thing when, for as much as we talk about the next gen and this this next, the, the generation after next gen, like the Gofans and the the, the Raoniches and the Nishikoris and like Dimitrov particularly, don't wait for this generation to pass and then make your mark. Like go challenge them. I will say, I don't think I, in your comparison, I don't, maybe you didn't mean it quite this literally, but I don't think that Sock has Kyrgios' upside. I, I think he's good, but I, don't, I think yeah, Kyrgios is a much higher no. ceiling. No, Sock. for sure. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think of Sock as being a potential future number one the way I do of Kyrgios. Oh, you mean tennis? Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> no, I'm not going to yeah. disagree with that. I wouldn't disagree. No. Yeah, no, and, no. and and in terms of and in terms of uh, it'd be interesting to see how, yeah, and how much in terms of like we said, like I just said in introing this, like we, it's bizarre considering how you know people think the U.S. is all very in in some ways insulars or insular Jingo- or provincial and, and yeah, yeah, and and just like USA, USA, USA that we kind of kind of just let Jack Sock do his thing and more or less ignore him. Yeah, and, but, and, and he doesn't get the scrutiny by any means that Nick Kyrgios has. Right. And if that has been a good or bad thing for him, I think it's probably been both. Um, maybe, you know, maybe a little more uh, scrutiny or negative attention might have put a little more pressure on him to, you know, get into better shape or into, you know, stop cramping issues that he had several times at big matches at the U.S. Open and things like that. And his fitness never seemed, did seem to be kind of behind where his raw talent was. Um, I don't know. Maybe that would have helped. But at the same time, it also means he doesn't have to deal with the highs and lows. And, and Kyrgios, obviously, I mean, I've had firsthand experience with this, you know, it <laughs> can, can be sensitive to criticism and, and, you know, lash back at people or just, oh, you know, strike Fina, back. And, it's okay. And, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, you, I totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that, you know, one thing that did, and I guess that it always hits home with me at the slams and at the, the tour's biggest tournaments that are joint, like mandatory and, and masters, I just, and I think that you and I have said this a gazillion times, like, I think that we're really, really grateful that we don't have to cover this sport as if so it's an that. Olympic sport. Yeah. That, that and that's the way other countries want it. I mean, yeah, and, and, and I we just, see, like, we, we're friends with, obviously, Carol Bouchard, who's on the last episode, which y'all should listen to if you haven't yet, and CR182A. Um, and she's right there's a lot of freelancing for Belgian, Belgium, and so part of her obligation every day is to talk to every Belgian, play, Belgian player who plays. And we just don't have to approach the order of play in the same way at all. No, we talk. I don't have to be. To I don't have to be there and be like. We I think it's a story. Like, yeah, I don't have to sit there and say, "Crap, I missed Arena Falcone." You know, if Falcone does something noteworthy or she fits into a story I'm writing, great. But just the sort of you know but daily maintenance. Yeah. Catching up with we don't do maybe maybe that's a void that American tennis fans would appreciate hearing more from a lot of these really good players who go relatively underappreciated players like. 
Allison Risk, who's a top 50 player, gotten very, relatively almost no Lauren coverage. Lauren Davis, who's one yeah, of the Lauren winningest Davis players is, of 2017. I actually had a good chat with Lauren Davis in New York. You did, yeah. We'll talking about her soon. And so um, she's had a really quietly, really good 2017. Uh, Coco Vandeweghe, you know, even being a slam semifinalist. And she got a lot of attention during those two weeks. But, you know, in terms of being a top 50 player with this, with, with her backstory, maybe she's gotten I – mean, she's probably gotten a fairly – big amount just because of the easy access through her empties and stuff but my yeah. only point would be like like it like you said before with sock it, it, it the the sword cuts both ways definitely so like with vandaway she makes that you know australian open semifinal amazing honestly probably should have beaten venus but but she makes Coulda. it and then you know does a great thing with fed cup you know helps lead the u.s to 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 the next round does nothing in the middle east does nothing in 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 Indian Wells. Yeah, lost first match to Safarova, and we leave her alone. Mm-hmm. Right, like the, there is no you, you contrast that to what like a Eugenie Bouchard has to go through, for example, or a Kanta, um, if she were to do the same, or a Kyrios, or or Murray, Tomic, yeah, Tomic, even like, Fanini or something. But yeah. that's always been my thing. It was like, you know, the more that. I don't know. I I would be I would genuinely be interested to hear what fans think about this. So please go to our Facebook, let us know when we post this episode. But like is it better to focus on your national country and to sell the players that are of your nationality to your people? Or is it better to cover the sport as a sport and it doesn't matter whose flag flies yeah. next to whose name? I, I obviously mean, for me, fall under the the latter, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Like you know, I like, think I I think that it would be it, it, w- there w- it wouldn't be bad to have a a, a really um, vigilant beat writer who was sort of more of a U.S. focused person. And there have been outlets. I mean, like certainly the ESPN.com writers and the USTA and the USA Today writers um, tend to be more American focused. Uh, and but I gotta say, in terms of my job enjoyment, I have absolutely loved being given free reign to treat the sport like the global sport it is and getting to go out and spend the time and, you know, to write the in-depth Tamea Baczynski profile or to go to Korea and talk to Ducky Lee or whatever it is, you know, and that's the sort of things that if we were more insular or more nativist, whatever you want to say with our, uh, with our tennis coverage and we had to act like, Sock or Serena obviously is a you know everyone writes about Serena around the world. She's she's number one. She's the the player of this generation, man or man or woman. It's it's it frees you up and you can write things um you know about whatever. But maybe those players go underreported. But I'm sure, like I'm I would you know if, if if there was a conversation between Heather Watson and Allison Risk about this, weighing the pros and cons of their lives, uh you know getting this disparate treatment from their national media. Uh, I'd be I'd be interested to hear that. Maybe maybe we could sponsor that on NCR. Sometime. There you go. No, I mean I, I've been I've been often curious about that. I mean, as one who works for the tour, who is charged with covering these these girls uh, all the time, you know, there are definitely those moments where I do pull a player aside and say, like, just curious, like, if you lose, are you insulted if I don't come talk to you, or like, would you prefer to be completely anonymous when you lose? Like, what exactly? What do they say? It's split. Some of them yeah. are just like, oh, man, like when I lose and nobody talks to me, like it just makes it even worse. And then there are those that say, like, when I lose and nobody talks to me, like, thank God I can just go home. I don't want to talk yeah. to you guys, you know. So it's really, really individual. 
And it can be based on what kind of loss it was, too. It can be based on that as well, but we were just kind of talking, like, generally, because I was just like, trying to establish, you know, expectations of, of just, like, you know, what do, what do you want from me? Because I can do both, but but more often than not, I will leave you alone unless you're lost, you know, like the journalist hat. Like, I'll leave you alone if you lose, but if the loss has some sort of significance, then I'm going to have to drag you in. And, uh... So, yeah, so so it's hard, and, and, you know, the players who have, like, a national press corps definitely have to sit in front of their press corps when they lose far more often than players who have a national press corps that don't really give a care. But, uh, yeah, just the question is, like, whether or not that, I don't know, whether or not that matters. Like, is it bad that Americans, like you, I me, mean, I'm sure, Chris, I'm sure there, you know. I'm sure there is some Coco Vandoy fan out there who is disappointed not to have had her thoughts on losing to Safarova, you know, I, and even if that was a late night match, um, which we might not have dragged in. Hold on a second, there's a fire truck driving by. I think this podcast has been lit. I think that's the what fire we're seeing. Engine. That's what we're seeing. It's a, this, the, coming out to burn, to, to cool off our burning hot takes. So maybe we should turn off the stove here. Um, thank you very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis and uh, respond to this us or just use the hashtag NCR 183 to talk about this episode in specific. We, that's actually working for the first time in a long time with this uh, Sharapova Palooza episode for NCR 182A. There's like actual comments on the hashtag. We want to create a conversation. This is a, a lot. And uh uh, a lot of us talking at you and we want to have it come back at us and with each other. So um, open up the, the flow in, in both ways. Uh, send us questions. Another way to contact us directly, send us questions, comments, whatever, by email, nochallengesremaining at gmail.com. And you can get new episodes automatically by subscribing to us on iTunes or any other podcasting app of your liking. Courtney, you have feelings about things? I have a quick one if, you, if you're... No, go for it. You go okay. first because mine's going to be long. So you go first. So my quick one is um, I edited the SV182A um, in a, at the library when I was visiting my friend in Chapel Hill. I went to the public library, the Chapel Hill Public Library, which was beautiful and lovely. And it was my second time in a public library in the last couple of weeks. I'd just been to the huge Martin Luther King Library in downtown D.C. because it was going to be closing for like years of renovations and so it'd be the last time to like sort of get at their collections of stuff they were all like being in one place um for the last time in a long time so i checked out like 10 books there and we'll return them to whatever other smaller branch libraries while we're there and so my takeaway my rave is that libraries are cool and just like there it made me happy especially being in, in chap chapel hill especially which was much nicer honestly than the martin Luther king library in dc um that you know just gives me renewed faith in the purpose of civic institutions and that we should all think these are wonderful things that we're able to create societies to better ourselves and that is obviously a read or something at whatever budget cuts are going on in our world um to know subtweet. that subtweet <laughs> just knowing that you know seriously these these things are great and they have real positive benefits and i am happy to pitch in parts of my paycheck actual or theoretical you know to make the world a more livable and better place for myself and for others around me you know it's, it's just cool that 
like and especially in chapel hill there were like a bunch of like parents and they're like young kids like walking out with like wagons full of books that kind of thing and that just made me happy having seen you know matilda many times and the sequence yeah so i was just i was just into it hooray for literacy hooray for you know having nice things that better society and sustaining them and working to sustain them and supporting literacy humanity arts whatever yay for all of that Courtney, what's your uh, bigger one? Yeah, no, I will, first of all, echo all of that. Um, As one who grew up on public libraries, my parents didn't have the time nor the money to take me to bookstores to buy books. I I checked out books all the time. I would just lie on the couch in the library and just read books. Libraries are like the most amazing thing. Like they are like like the Uber of books. Exactly. Before Wikipedia, I would just literally be like, I'm going to check out for 24 hours, volume C of the Encyclopedia Botanica, and I'm just going to read it. Now, is that super nerdy? Sure. But, like, you know. I wonder if, we, I wonder if my family still has, we eventually got, like, Ooh, you a fancy. series of, like, yeah, like the volume encyclopedia things, and we had, there was, like, I don't know, 15 books divided alphabetically. I wonder if we still have those. I remember I would my love favorite to- edition, my favorite, like, volume of Encyclopedia Britannica was always M, there okay. was like awesome stuff in M. M was amazing. So I would like to remember that any out. particular one. No, not off the top of my head. I just remember like I must have checked it out multiple times because like I didn't finish it the first time and then like pulled it the second time and whatever. And because it was his, the encyclopedia, you could only have it once, like, you know, for overnight. Um, but I was a goober and I was a geek and I just liked reading and yay for people celebrating words and recognizing that words mean things. And also that certain words don't mean other things and understanding that semantics matters. Cause I'm really freaking full of like, I'm just like at like my forehead uh, as I make this gesture, I'm just, I'm just over people thinking that they can say whatever they want to say. And then afterwards be like, Oh no, but that's not what I meant. Well then say what you meant. Yeah. Stop with this. It's so baloney. Just like understand that what you say, especially as an influencer or a tweeter or whatever, actually has import. Even if you're a nobody who, like, tweets at a player and you're pissed off at, like, because they lost or whatever. Understand your words matter. Words matter. And I've always, like, celebrated that. That's been, like, the bedrock of, like, my entire life, now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. Like, know what words mean and use them with purpose. And that's not even my rant or rave. I mean, I still have another whole other thing, but can I, can, I, yeah. can I tack on a little thing to that? I remember people being very heartened in Indian Wells after Kayla Day lost that she got like lots of very nice tweets being like, that was awesome. That was great. Way right. to go. And that's and like as a tennis watcher, um, you can almost send I've heard I've actually heard fans refer to it this way, almost like a thank you note to players after after matches, especially once they lost. They were good and just be like, hey, you know, I don't know, Lucy Safarova. I thought that was a really great match. Uh, you, you guys both played awesome. Thank you for entertaining me for the last two hours. You know, and the players will see that. And that's like a really kind of cool, you know, positive vibes thing out there. So, yeah, maybe try yeah, that. No, I love that. Please, people do that. Because these players, they do read a lot of their social media. And the positivity matters. And yeah. they're, and they're, they're out there killing. They're out, yeah, they're out there killing themselves for you, for your entertainment. And if, you are, and if you were entertained, let them know you were entertained, even if I they agree. lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so my raves, yeah, I'll go plural. It, it's really about one person, but generally it's about two. My WT coworkers are pretty great. Oh, I, I know love, this. 
<laughs> I love I love very much the people that I work for. My entire experience uh, for over a year and a half has been amazing. And as you guys know, I travel quite a bit. But but there has been a person who is no no longer going to be with the WTA after next week who has been absolutely instrumental, not just to my career with the WTA, but my career before it. And I think Ben will probably echo this as well. Um, Eloise Tyson, Director of Communications, specifically on-site communications, uh, yeah. is leaving us at the end of this week to join a little um, organization called Wimbledon. You know, when I was when I was a lowly blogger and I didn't know what the heck was going on and I didn't know what the system was, like L was like so polite, so accommodating, so welcoming and just amazing. And then that obviously continued when I was with Sports Illustrated and then obviously as a coworker, it's been awesome. If any of you guys ever get a chance to be coworkers with Eloise Tyson, please do so because bitch got stories. Like, <laughs> yo. Like I can't of, I can't repeat them, but trust me, I have been enriched. <laughs> one of um actually the friends of the show, Alex Willis, is gonna be working Oh uh, yeah. Actually actually Eloise will be working against under her. I'm not talking to Willis so. because of this. Yeah, no, so 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 Ella's great. Um it's been amazing and, and, and so celebrating her is kind of my jumping off point to a very specific thing, which is never underestimate the value of on-site communications and recognize that like there are a bunch of people that make this sport work uh, for you as fans that you will never see or you'll see fleetingly uh, yeah. with, with, with respect to comms um, because they come on court every once in a while to talk to the players. But Eloise was the head of it. There are a bunch of other people who I adore and love who bust their ass and travel the world to do it. Alex, Adam, Jeff, uh, Kate, uh, Catherine, uh, Eloise, uh, sorry, not Eloise anymore, but Estelle, like, and they're amazing. And, and the ATP folks also. And the ATP folks in. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Nicola, uh, Edward, uh, Maria, Maria. Uh, Martin, Martin, like all of you guys, like, yeah. and people don't understand what these people do because sometimes they, they're stuck. Their whole role is to be an antagonist because what they're happens? Gatekeeper. They're yeah. a gatekeeper. At the end of the day, us as journalists, and this includes me as WTA, people don't know this, but I submit my requests the same way that any journalist does. I don't go through back channels or anything like that. So I submit requests or like whatever when I was a sports illustrator or as a blogger, the same way as Ben. And that comms person has to then go to the player, go to the agent and say, so Ben Rothenberg with the New York Times with like 15 minutes, you know, after your match today. You know, talk to you about visors or something talk weird. Talk about something dumb. stupid, like you know, like yeah. for both of us, and they have to negotiate that. And it's and I know with the WTA, especially with Eloise, the idea was always try and provide access to the journalist, never hide the player, never try and be like ah no she's not in the mood. Try their job was really and and her ethos was to like go to the player and be like please go talk to the journalist about this because it's good for the sport it's good for the tour it's good for you you know all that and and she's amazing and she set such a good tone for it and the comms group is great and the last story that I'll tell about Eloise before I wrap this up is the you know well there's two things it's like one when I was with like uh when I was a blogger and with SI I would submit requests and Eloise would come back hours later and be like oh you know thank you for your request it's a polite decline a polite decline I was gonna say it's her yeah face. and I was like okay and, and genuinely the way that Elle said it all the time I was like well well it's a polite decline 
now with the also, tour. Also, we like we are fine with taking no for an answer. Yeah, no is it's good. It's much better. It's much better than being strung along with a lot of hollow maybes. Yes, yes or no. Tell me no because then I can yeah. make promises up the chain. But yeah. so so that was always the funny thing. It's like oh, you know, it's a polite decline, but maybe next time just submit your request. And she was always like. She was great. I mean, like the players should know this, that like she really protected you guys um, in terms of like with the journalists. Yeah. Yeah, It wasn't like, oh, this player is throwing a fit. She doesn't want to talk to you. Like, you know, it was just, oh, it's a plight. You should have seen the face she made when I said your name. Exactly. Which I'm sure she could. I'm sure they do make those faces. (laughs) Like I said, if you're friends with Eloise, you get the stories. Um, (laughs) But so that's one. So that's one thing. But the, but the other thing as well, so so it was it was last year, January. Angelique Kerber had just won the Australian Open. I had to do a Champions Corner with her on podcast, and she you know that final ended pretty late, so it wasn't going to happen that night unless I wanted a really exhausted Angie Kerber. So I was like, that's fine. So Eloise said, okay, why don't you ride with with Angie to her photo shoot? you know, at the, 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 the mayor's house or something like that, where she does the champagne and dresses up the next day. No problem. Go. And jumped in the river? No, no, no. This was after the river jumping. Okay. Uh, this was uh, a later thing. So we go, we take photos, whatever, do the interview in the car on the way to the, the mansion. And then we are on the way back and Kerber just like reflexively like takes off her high heels because let me, tr- let me tell you, these girls are not used to wearing the heels. Right. So she just is like taking out the high heels. Eloise, sitting next to Kerber, pulls out of her purse a plastic shopping bag that she has specifically packed in her bag, specifically for this instance, when her Grand Slam champion doesn't want to wear her shoes anymore and, like, won't even just hold them, but, like, here's a bag for them. So she, like, like didn't say anything. She took the shoes, put them in the plastic bag, wrapped them up, just held them. And, like, Angie had flip-flops and just, like, put on flip-flops, and she was so much happier. And it was, like, in that moment, I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God, she is really good at her job. That is, like, some next-level Tony Hale Veep kind of stuff. I right know, there. I know. It's, like, Tony Hale Veep or, like, like the Devil Wears Prada. Like, you thought about it before it was going to happen. Like, and she was, like, so, like, oh, no, don't worry, I have a bag for him. Like, she was, like, so prepared for it. It was amazing. Eloise, you're awesome. I know for a fucking fact that you're listening to this. I know that you just heard me cuss and you can't do a damn thing about it because you no longer work for the tour. I love you to death. You're awesome. I will see you at Wimbledon. Thank you for making my entire career so far in tennis. So awesome and so great and so loving. So I appreciate you. Oh, and with that, we appreciate all of you for listening to this pretty long episode. Um, We will be back to you Next time with some Miami thoughts or maybe some Charleston pre-thoughts, but then even, I don't know. Uh, We will see you in the future. Bye, guys.